Hello and welcome to Be The Wolf. I am your host, Jenea Barnes. Many people struggle to be the fullest, biggest, truest versions of themselves. They bend to fit into other people's ideals of who and what they should be. They tame their brilliance to avoid judgment and gain approval. A long time ago, people attempted to tame the wilderness of Yellowstone National Park by eradicating predators. Taming the wilderness collapsed the ecosystem. But there's hope. In the mid-90s, 41 wolves were introduced into the park and with this, the ecosystem replenished itself and flourished. The wolves did nothing but be exactly who they are meant to be and do what they were born to do. So I say to you, be the wolf. Hello, hello everybody and welcome to this episode of Be the Wolf. We're going to talk about when the odds are stacked against you and I think some of you out there know what that feels like. And I am here today with Ann Brandon. She is a badass human, a change maker, and she has lived quite a life that's had quite a few pivots and shifts. And she has managed to carve out a life that most people would probably not think was possible. Um, and say hello to everybody. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Me too. I'm super excited. So, you know, we talk about when the odds are stacked against us. And I think a lot of people out there are starting to really recognize trauma and the effects that trauma really has on your life. Because I think for generations and generations, you just stuffed it down. You didn't talk about it. I know I did that with my trauma. <laughs> Stuff it down. It never happened. Um, granted, a lot of my trauma was so big that my mind just made me forget it. <laughs> um, but you had, so you were diagnosed super young with ADHD and um, it was called ADD back then. And which is pretty, people are getting diagnosed left and right now, but it wasn't pretty, it wasn't very common when you and I were growing up. And you, yeah, I'll let you tell us a little bit about like the beginnings, the beginnings of your life. <laughs> born now. Um, so to, to the reference to the neurodivergence, which I, I've learned so much more about it. At first, I thought ADD was just this thing where you can't sit still, you're inattentive, you're a daydreamer. And that is all true. But there are so many more layers to what ADHD is. But the reference that you had is like, I was probably six or seven diagnosed and for um, girls to be diagnosed is an anomaly in general still today. And so you have to imagine this being in the early seventies. So 73 or 74. And so it was an anomaly. And I guess I was just really bad. <laughs> um, it was just very noticeable. And so with, well, you talked about trauma and you talked about ADD, but like the two of those together and the types of like um, kind of the childhood that I had, um, had trauma in it, uh, not necessarily from my parents, but within our family realm, there was trauma. And so I think the coupling of that um, uh, affected me deeply, but the specific ADD disallowed me to sit still and learn in class in, in the neurotypical way. And so how that like connect, like how that really is the impact it is that I missed the base learning of things. Like if I miss one formula in math and I'm, I'm not going to be able to like pick it back up, you know, because you're going to need that, that base level formula, like things like that. So I was just unable to grasp, um, uh, subject matter. I was unable to sit during it. And so I had, you know, special tutoring. So they took you out to the trailers, what we would call it, it was a special trailer outside of school. And you kind of got taken there and done this, this one-on-one -on -one thing. And when I was able to do it one-on-one, -on -one, I was um, able to learn and, uh, you know, I guess they call them 504s or, or whatever the accommodations are now. They didn't really have that except for this trailer. 
But if you were tagged in the trailer, then you were kind of like a slow, tagged as a slow learner or disabled or, you know, um, a dis not really disabled, but really kind of like a learning disability. Um, and so that follows you. So you're the trailer person in that learning disability realm. And so I thought I was dumb, right? So I, I didn't understand that there was a neurological difference in the brains of folks with neurodivergency and that some things soak in and I will hyper-focus on it and some things don't. <laughs> and I don't know what it is that does or doesn't or what the mechanism is, but it also is seen as lazy. It's also seen as um, disassociating. It's also seen as... Um, uh, bad behavior or just, you know, talking a lot or like, you know, not able to sit in your seat. So there's like all of these labels that you're labeled. And I began, you know, I believed those labels. So, um, yeah. And I think that's super, I mean, when we were growing up, you know, the trailer or the special <laughs> ed, yeah. the special ed class, yeah. all of those things. And if you were there, it is, you I mean, it's so crazy when you're little, you can have such the tiniest thing, create this belief. And when you believe it, it comes true. I mean, that's just the fact. If you think that you're dumb, you will hold yourself back unconsciously because you have this belief that you can't do something. It's really interesting before we like dive deeper when we talk about adhd uh gaber mate who is a trauma specialist his theory that what he believes causes adhd is that a child is when they're very very young like unable to still like roll even roll over or crawl or anything when they are so young and there's stress in the home that they have nothing, no other way to escape other than there's no fight. You can't fight, obviously, you're a baby in a crib. Uh, you can't run away. You can't hide. You can't do any of those things that we normally instinctually do with stress. So there becomes this dissociation that becomes a coping mechanism when there is any type of stress or uncomfortable feeling. And so his his theory is that it basically is a trauma response. And I can say from I've worked with quite a few people that have ADHD. And when we go do some of the healing stuff that goes back, I mean, it goes some of it's in the womb, like that's what I was gonna say. That's what I was gonna say. More more likely in my situation, I was given up for adoption. So I'm, I'm very much certain that there was stress and anxiety and, and this was in the sixties. And if the mother is whatever the mother feels, those chemical reactions flood to the baby. So if the baby's feeling that they're trapped in the womb, they can't go anywhere. And it makes perfect sense that the coping mechanism would be to like, just start darting your focus around anywhere and everywhere to a try to escape that feeling. You know, I've always been really interested in um, nurture versus nature too, right? So how much of it is could be genetic? And I was, apparently I was born with the cord wrapped around my neck. Would that be loss of oxygen? Would that create something else? Or, you know, so I feel like there's a, a lot of possibilities or layers. Um, I think it's really what we're bringing to light and what is that it's not a laziness. It's not a, you know, like there's, there's, there's many reasons why someone may have ADHD, right? Yeah, exactly. And it's even when I say like trauma or whatever, trauma can be something so simple. When I say it's a moment that you are emotionally overwhelmed. And when you're emotionally overwhelmed, not all of your emotions process and that anchors into your nervous system as a trauma. It doesn't mean that anybody's parents did anything wrong. I mean, some, some parents do, of course, but it doesn't necessarily mean that these terrible things have to happen. You could just get lost in a grocery store and you could be so overwhelmed and so scared that that creates a major abandonment issue in your life forever because it registers to the nervous system as trauma. So Absolutely.
It's uh, when I talk about trauma in this, it's not always like, oh my God, they were beaten constantly as a kid, like crazy things like that. I think it's um, really important that you nuance that out because um, I think a lot of folks are like, well, I am this way because of this thing, but it didn't seem like, you know, they might not like attach to it as this big, you know, child abuse or, 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 or thing. And what we're saying is just acknowledging the space of, of that I was overwhelmed with emotions and I had to shut it, you know, shut down. So that, yeah, I like the way you nuance that. Absolutely. And so when we're talking about, we've got these things stacked against us. So I don't necessarily think ADHD is a bad thing. It just means your brain works differently. And because when we're talking about, especially in this, be the wolf, be who you were born to be, it means that you might not be able to do things in the total normal way that everybody else does them, which is in some ways it can be a powerful gift because you've got to figure out your own way that works for you. And of course, if you figure it out, it it gives you this different kind of self-belief and self-confidence in yourself that I think people that just go the normal route and do everything that they're supposed to, and there's nothing wrong with that, but you don't end up necessarily with as much self-trust when you have success because you went a way that was laid out for you versus having to carve your own path. And that is such a big be the wolf quality is stepping outside the box of whatever's so-called normal to, to really carve your own path and what is right for you. And so, okay, you grew up there. You had stress in your family for sure. And uh, what was like, what's another thing that really like stacked those odds against you when we're talking about trying to create a life of success that everyone would call? (laughs) So, um, you know, full disclosure, the the trauma you know the 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 family issues that were not acknowledged or some unknown so there was abuse in our home and within our family but it was unknown to our caregivers it was unknown to our parents um but then also um i was assaulted when i was like 14 years old um i was sexually assaulted so i thought, you know, oh my gosh, you know, there's two ways that like, if you're introduced to sexuality in a, um, in a way that, you know, very early on and things like that, like there's two routes. Sometimes you're, you, you drive towards, um, the, I would say like the, I'm going to just, I'm not worthy of anything. So I'm going to like go out and have fun and write. Um, and I don't know how to under oversimplify that, which was really like, I engaged in a lot of activity, that was sexual and or you shut down and you're completely and utterly not connecting to another human in relationships right so like these two things i am also a very fun and adventurous person but in this situation i um i was sexually assaulted at 14. not because it was my fault not because like i was you know sexually promiscuous is not with me like that actually changed and shifted me and, sh- and literally shut me down as a person who could have like normal relationships it is it was so impactful it stunted my growth. It stunted my emotional intelligence. It stunted everything within me. And so I never um, sat still with that. I never sat still and acknowledged that space before. I was just like, I've got to, I've got to just keep going. I got to keep moving. Right. Um, and so, you know, your self-worth or, I mean, 14, you're such a, like such an age that is just so imperative to your development. So very much stunted. So I've got the ADD and then like you, I got the ADD and I'm not dealing with it at all. I don't have the emotional intelligence too, but I'm not dealing with it at all. And then I was assaulted again at 19. And so the, these particular layers um, really shaped like my, like my interactions with folks in those spaces. I'm sure if anyone fully interacted me with, they're like, you're a psycho. And I'm saying that because I just wasn't able to connect with people. Right. 
I mean, I, I'm saying that not like that, that a sexual assault survivors are psycho. Like I just was completely shut down as a human being. So I just want to be really clear as a survivor, that does not mean that, but how it, how it played out in me, um, my experience was, I was just a shut down human being. Um, yes. Um, so then I'm going to go to college, right? So <laughs> I am still driven though. Here's the thing. I'm still driven. My parents didn't have money. I'm still driven. I am going to get an athletic scholarship. I'm going to college. They told me early on, we are not able to send you to college. We don't have the money. And so I set a goal. I set a goal at like 12. I'm going to college. I'm going to be the first in our family to go to college. And I did. I got the athletic scholarship. So throughout that, through all of the you know things, I did not do standardized testing well. I got like an ACT, like a 15 on my ACT. Like that's how you got in back then. Like I just, I couldn't take standardized tests because I couldn't sit so that long, but I still got a scholarship to go to college. Um, you know, so even though I'm like kind of emotionally shut down, I still had this drive. I was driven to prove people like I am not like I am. I'm an angry young woman, but I'm going to show you what I can do because people expected me to fail. And so I did. I got an athletic scholarship, but I just did not have the emotional intelligence, nor the diligence, nor the accommodations that I needed when I went to college. And so I was done within a year. <laughs> I mean, I was out. So like, the goal was to make it there, but I didn't know what to do after that. Like, right. And that, and that's such a big thing. It's like, we have these, this is why purpose is so important because the brain needs a problem to solve. And so the problem has to be not solvable. It has to be a goal that you could never like get to. So your brain is always working towards it. Your brain's always going to try to like figure it out. And once you got to that place, you reached that end goal, then it was like, uh, uh, now what? And I th think this happens to a lot of people. They like work so hard and make partner and then they get there and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm miserable. And part of it is because they don't have something that they're working towards anymore. And so, okay, so you were done for college within a year. And then I went back home to my hometown, um, went to a frat party and met my uh, future husband, future ex-husband, <laughs> but future husband, <laughs> um, superb human being. This person set me on the right track because I was not well. I wasn't well. Um, everything was culminating, you know, I, I know that this person saw in me, this person that I can be and have become, but wasn't there yet. So, but there was a really great bond and a really kind person, um, uh, in my former partner, my ex-husband. And so that did shift me. I think that one, that meeting that one person, and I'm, and I'm not saying that that person can save someone or that we're looking for someone to save us, but like that shifted me and we were dating for a year. And then we um, became pregnant. So uh, we were going to be parents at 21 years old, right? Wow. <laughs> so again, another moment that shifted me towards, I have to, I have to like be a responsible human being. And um, all of these wonderful things came together. Like he was at college, then we moved to Mississippi to be near his parents so he could um, get his grad degree. You know, I worked, we raised our son, uh, the grandparents, uh, his parents helped us. Like it was just this whole altering of my life where I never thought that I was going to be in this space. Had I stayed in my hometown, you know, my luck would be like, I get to work at a factory. Like that was the best job. That was that was the alternative was, and, and nothing wrong with the factory work. It pays a lot of money. It's just, you know, that that is the best option in, in my hometown. So, um, or one of the best for, for, for my qualifications. So very much just developed this like steady, like I am worthy. Um, I'm now a mother. I now um, need to think of more than just myself. So I think it kind of shifted and my emotional intelligence has grown. Like I grew as a human being. Um, but then it all exploded because I, sat, I, I totally self-sabotaged it. 
Okay, before we get there, I, I want to just say a couple of points that are really important for the people listening. When you have one person that believes in you, it can make the biggest difference in your life. And especially if you're somebody that has trouble connecting with other people. I, from my past trauma and stuff, I... I was real good at putting on the face of connecting, but I had these big blo cylinder blocks between us. I was a bartender for a long time. I had that wall, and that wall there made it safe, right, to connect. Um, but the piece there is having that person that believes in you, and you can start to see yourself through somebody else's eyes is such a huge piece in the journey to coming back to your self-worth. And then I just also want to point out, now you had another goal. So you had a child to take care of. So there became that, that goal with that problem for the brain to solve. Okay. And like so many people, you self-sabotaged. Yes. Because I hadn't looked at all. I mean, I had not, I hadn't been still enough, you know, that it's going to come out. If I don't, if you don't deal with it, it's going to come out in some way, whether that's in a positive, you know, how folks can connect or go to counseling or, or meditation or, or yoga or however their faith, however someone deals or works on their thing, or it's going to blow stuff up. <laughs> The typical and I'm gonna just blow stuff up. And basically that meant that I just did not believe that I deserved this beautiful home, this 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 child that was you know thriving or this nice kind husband. I don't deserve any of these things. And so yeah, definitely going to like blow blow that up. I will say that I did not look back and think that was a wrong move. How I did it was very inauthentic and harmful and hurtful to people. Okay. But that I never looked back and thought I, I should have stayed there. I could have, I just didn't have the the capacity to be like, I'm, I'm not happy. I need something different. I don't know why, um, you know, went to the counseling, but I was already out. So I was already, I was already out. So this space, this was really the launch of, I'm going to go like, you know, this is the nineties. I have no degree. I'm going to, you know, sh shared parenting. My former husband was this whole custody person. I was like, they've got money. He's got money. He's going to be okay. I'm here in parenting still. And I just think the best place is because I don't, I'm going to make, I'm making 14 bucks an hour. So like, I don't even know how I'm going to feed my kids. So like, I'm like, this is the best thing. Well, let's do this in an amicable way. And we really did the best, really good job of co-parenting after that. So it, I, I very much realized that I cannot create a volatile space and expect my child to be healthy or, or, you know, I just, I don't, I, I needed peace. I, I couldn't have volatile, dramatic, you know, divorce or, or not have peace with that. And so that's where the growth began. But I began launching kind of like these career things that were like, hey, um, I started in accounting. Why can't I do accounting um, in like at a newspaper? Okay. So I got an accounting job in a newspaper and I was like, okay, I'm cool. And then I was like, hey, this advertising department is super fun. I think I could do advertising for a newspaper and I would go down and hang out with all the people in advertising. And, you know, that, that trainee job opens up where you're basically like the, you know, admin person who kind of like collects all the ads and does this thing. And so I'm like, Oh my God, I love this. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I could do this like in direct sales. I could totally do this. And then, um, this was with uh, the Louisville Courier Journal, and um, my former husband had gotten remarried, and they he got a job in Cincinnati, and I was like, "Hey, we're all going together. Like, I'm coming with, <laughs> living with y'all, but I'm coming with." And got a job at the um, Cincinnati Enquirer um, as a like a sales rep. So I all of a sudden I'm going. I went from fourteen dollars an hour to somewhat of a livable wage, right? Um, to I moved, I moved to there like 2000, I can't remember, like, yeah, 90, actually 98. So like, I always had this, like, I can do that thing. And all of these jobs required a four-year degree. 
all of them. Again, what I'm seeing in you is this like decision. Hey, I could do that. I want to do that. So I'm going to do that. So this belief that it, it was there a belief that you could do it. I oh, mean, absolutely. that's what I hear. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. I can do this because how I learn is by watching and doing. And I have this super high level of work. When I say work ethic, that doesn't mean that I'm just such a hard worker and I deserve this. It just means that I can see patterns. I can use this neurodivergence and I am, once I get it, I'm going to hyper-focus on it and be the best. And it's sales. So I'm somewhat charming. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're not. <laughs> I mean, I'm, you know, and, you know, sales. Yeah. And it was fun. Like you get free concert tickets, you get to go to games. And that was like my fun, like I, it was a fun job and I have to sit still in an office for eight hours. So I needed something that kind of like worked with my neurodivergence, worked with that ADD. I'm out driving around, I'm going to different clients, you know, so yeah. it, it fit. Um, it fit. And then I got a job at a TV station and this was a huge bump in salary. And with that, so within, you know, uh, four years of my divorce making, you know, 13 some dollars an hour, or no, I don't even know if it was that like $14 an hour to, I'm going to make six figures this year. Um, and I'm like, I have made it. So when you work at a TV station, you're selling ads, you have made it like in this space. And it was like the top TV station in Cincinnati. And I was like, oh, this is going to be fantastic. I, uh, eh. One of the worst jobs I've ever had in my life. Wow. <laughs> the one of the worst jobs I've ever had in my life. Um, good people met great people, but it was just I had to sacrifice my integrity. I had to try and sell things that they didn't need and shouldn't buy. And, uh, you know, clients. And I just did not like the feel of it. Like I didn't like the, the energy of what I was being asked to do. And, you know, being asked to cut down my colleagues to get a sale in front of them. Like everything um like morally like integrity wise just horrible it's really interesting because what i see that is so powerful in your story so far is that you take you took little steps right it's just little step little step little step and a lot of times people especially if they're neurodivergent what they want to jump way ahead to the big thing and that does it always will like it's like there's no foundation so it's like just like there's a big hole underneath so you just, the foundation is really slippery and it often ends up in sabotage basically and so you took these little steps but then you get to this place where you're asked to sacrifice your integrity and go against your own personal values and this is really important for everybody listening. Every single thing you do, every action you do in your life either builds your self-esteem or diminishes your self-esteem. And when you go against your values, your personal values, you are diminishing your self-esteem and your self-worth. And it may, the longer you stay in a position like that, the harder it is to regain that high opinion of yourself, because that's really what self-esteem is. It's your opinion of yourself and your opinion of yourself affects the way you show up in everything. So when you're sacrificing your integrity for money or for a company or whatever, it did, did you feel that cut in your self-esteem while working at this job? I don't know if, well, I absolutely want to validate what you're saying because, you know, the integrity of, of how I left a marriage or the integrity of how I interacted with folks when I hadn't done the work so much, so much affected my self-esteem. Hmm. I left in time, I think, in this position for, yes. yeah, so for it to, to really dig deep, but I didn't in another situation. So we'll get to that. So in this space, 
it was like everything was was kind of aligned. Um, I worked at a TV station. My dad had lung cancer. I blew out my knee because I was still playing sports because I still, you know, needed that, you know, energy interaction and get that energy out. I love sports. I was playing like flag football and tore my ACL, which is a huge um, injury. There's, there's, you have to right. surgery. There's lots of rehab to it. So that I did that, found out my dad um, had lung cancer and then September 11th happened. So all of those things led to really me, I, I just wasn't engaged anymore. I, I was just like, you know, having conversations. This wasn't the job for me. I technically got fired, but yeah. I also know that, you know, there, there weren't a lot of like time and space for advertising because it was a 24 seven, you know, for showing 9-11 and of course, so right. So that right. cuts down their ad revenue, which would mean that they need to get rid of folks too, right? Um, so that was the blessing. That was such a blessing. Um, but I had decided, hey, I wasn't going to stay here anyway. I needed, you know, I was wanted to help take care of my dad. I wanted to do, you know, these things. I worked at, I was, I was a bartender then. I was like, all right, I'll figure this out. No worries. <laughs> um, and um, so that was again, September 11th. I got to be home with my dad that day um, and my family as we heard like his actual doctor be like, there's nothing we could do. So my dad passed in March of 2002. My mom passed a month later, unbeknownst to us, perfectly healthy. Maybe a broken heart. Sometimes people pass of a broken heart. Yes. And so in between that, I had gotten a job at like um, a, a, a construction company, kind of like being in sales and, and working with developers and like, you know, um, it it wasn't the, you know, the thing I wanted to do, but it was something that like it worked. Um, but like when I left to go to my dad's funeral, like the company disbanded. It was just a small company. And I got technically I got fired from that job, too. But it was more like we're disbanding. And I'm like, okay, what am I going to do? My mom was worried. Like this was before she passed away. My mom was worried, but they both passed away. And I was like, they worked so hard. Each one of them worked like you know, two or three jobs. They adopted three out of four kids. They retired and died. They really retired and died within a couple of years. And I'm like, I can't do that. I have to find something that will not make me just, you know, get a job to get a paycheck and not feel connected to it. And so, and yeah. I think that's so important because we are in this place, I think now where people are starting to see their parents go through that. They retire, they get cancer, they retire, they pass. They, And so there is this like, well, why am I working and killing myself to get to this place where I'm not going to enjoy life? It's about the sacrifice now for reward later, but then there's no reward later. So you started, you switched your thinking and you started looking for something you wanted to do. Um, yeah, let's let's get to the good stuff. Yeah, this is it. So I was like, all right, I don't know what it is, but I definitely want to do this, like um, helping people. Now, folks, it, it sounds so naive because like I just want to I just want to help people, right? And that's true. I did. I just wanted to be in a in a field that like I'm connected to the values. I'm connected to the mission. I'm, I, I've always been a helper. And so um, that's where my friends were like, you've lost your mind. You could go back into advertising. Like you could go get, you know, you could go get the money. You know, what are you doing? You're grieving. You're not thinking right. You're, you know, and you don't even have a degree. How are you going to work in nonprofit? How are you going to work in this helping field? If you like, how are you going to get in? Like you, you don't just walk in. And I was like, mm -hmm. yeah, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. I did. I asked for some guidance. I I, I mean that in the most um, uh, authentic way, which was I'm not here alone. I'm not doing this on my own. There is some alignment here. Show me the next step manifesting that I can uh, work at a, in a space that I'm connected to. I get a paycheck. I'm able to pay my bills and and 
And I was guided to a place called Women's Crisis Center in North Kentucky, which I didn't know. I didn't specifically ask, hey, since I was a victim of this and this or that, or since I've suffered trauma around sexual violence, I want to work in sexual violence. It was just this like little newspaper ad. It was probably like a paragraph that I just followed up with. And I got, I begged the person for an interview. I called and they're like, oh, we've got a lot of applicants already. Blah, blah. And I was like, no, just get me in. Just get me an interview. And just that's all I'm asking for. And she was like, oh, okay, fine. <laughs> she scheduled the interview. I don't know how, she probably didn't know how to take me. Um, and it, it ended up being between me and another finalist who had a master's degree. And that person got the job. And two weeks later, they quit and they called me back and they're like, we want you to come work for us. And yes. so I didn't even get the job, but I let it go. I surrendered it. I did everything I could. I did the presentation. I did, you know, I interviewed and I let it go. If I didn't get this, I know I have done everything in my power. And then two weeks later, I got the job. Um, and then that's so huge because one, you did your absolute best. So many people are like, don't put in the full effort to get something. And then they're super disappointed when they don't get it because they're really disappointed in themselves because they didn't do the prep work. They didn't fight for it. They didn't do. And so what happens is they get so disappointed because they didn't do their best. But when you do your best, it's so much easier to let it go and surrender. And I'm going to add to that if you don't mind. Yes. Even if you course. didn't do your best or what you think your best was, it really was your best at that time. Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, I could have done this and that, but for some reason, something stopped them from whatever the best is, which technically is their best. It wasn't meant for that because there are so many spaces that I was like, this is what I want. I want to work here. And I would get to the final interview and I didn't get the job and then find out it was awful. <laughs> like it was an awful space. So I want to add to that, but you're right as far as not being prepared and aligned when everything kind of like comes to fruition. Um, but um, my best is whatever I can deliver at that time. Um, yeah. And I think that, but you're right. Like parsing that out and nuancing that out is important. I worked there for 14 years and here's the most fabulous piece of, of this, of this work, I think is that I was at the right time, the right place. And there was a huge research like study that, that our state got funded to do um, on bystander intervention. It's called Green Dot. And we were involved in implementing this thing that actually reduced violence in 13 high schools, like 28,000 kids, kids like in the whole study. And it was for five years and it was funded by the CDC. And it was the first time ever that we measurably reduced like bullying, sexual violence, dating violence um, in high schools. And so just being in this space of the research project and being able to do the groundwork to implement the plan from the CDC and all of our researchers and, you know, I mean, there were so many integral people. You're not going to find me in the, all of that research, but I learned how to do the work as if I would have been in a graduate level course or even a PhD in this space. So I absorbed all of the content that I was that 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 folks shared with me, researchers, and um, they shared us. They shared with us like the whole picture, and so I was able to absorb that and now implement it in my work today. And so it was like going to it was like getting a PhD in in violence prevention. And what's really amazing about that, people talk about, oh, I have to go back to school and get a degree. I have to do this. Your education does not necessarily have to be a piece of paper. And I think what that piece of paper does for a lot of people is it bypasses the need for self-belief. Oh, this piece of paper, therefore I have it. So therefore, if I don't believe in myself, that's okay. But when you believe in yourself and you're doing the work and you're learning everything you need to learn and you're absorbing it mm -hmm. and you're truly passionate about something, you want to keep learning about it. And that's the thing. And that's what I hear is you were passionate about mm -hmm. this 
And it really, you got to do the helping people. You were super passionate and you get to take that knowledge and bring it forth into the work that you're doing today. Yeah. Yep. So where are you today? So um, I was, again, really lucky. And I was like, hey, I'm loving this work, but like I'm getting to an age where I like probably need to be thinking about when I might retire. And again, loving the experience, I, I need to look for something that might give, you know, make me a little bit more stable in my retirement because it's still nonprofit. So I was able to go to the next level. And really, I was like, here's what I want. I want to work from home, but I also want to stay in the field that I'm at. And, um, you know, I think it'd be cool to travel around and teach people how to do this work in violence prevention and sexual violence prevention and this thing. And so I got a job at a state coalition. And again, all of the, this job, again, I applied the first time, didn't get it. And then it came back around like four months later. So I worked at a state coalition do, as a director of prevention for an entire state. So I was able to work with many partners in Ohio, many colleges, many nonprofits, and really like trying to strategize and facilitate like this larger picture of how we can do this work well to reduce harm in there. Now, again, it came about, it was a work from home job before COVID. But what I didn't think about and what I suffered with was my inability to set healthy boundaries for work. My, my inability to recognize situations that were not authentic, that could be harmful for other folks in the field. I will tell you, um, nonprofits are um, great. I was lucky to be at some great nonprofits, but they can also churn and burn folks which is low pay, um, not a lot of health benefits. It, not in this case, I actually was paid very well to do this work, but I just didn't have the ability to set a healthy boundary of shutting work down. Um, I know I mentioned also that I'm the mother of someone who struggled with drug addiction um, and family members who struggle with drug addiction. So they've got these dueling like crisis type of work and just unable to shut it down. And then when COVID hit, it was just a compilation of things that like, although I was able to take my skill sets and bring it into a, a larger space, I did get into a space, my mental, I was not okay. I was not okay. There's nothing wrong with this organization. It was, I mean, I, all I'm saying is like, I was not okay. Everything came to a head. And I think that COVID just was the horrible icing on the cake. So I, I don't want to like say that that was not horrible, but that was just the tempest to like, and I the first time in my life where I really had to sit in my stuff and be like, I am sitting still in this. I can't move around. I can't go see people. I can't make myself busy. I can't like do this, like everything hit. Um, and so I, um, I had to quit my job. I was getting help. I was I was working with a coach. Um, I was also working with a counselor, um, and I just my coach, who was also a clinician. Her name is Elizabeth Joy. She's awesome too. A lot like you. Like you all both have these same. She said, "I see in you right now where if you do not like like I just see like you might want to check in with your your doctor." She could see that I was not well. Um, and so I did. And I basically took a medical leave and, and I knew that I could not go back to the space. So I quit my job without anything in place of it, knowing that, uh, oh, yeah, I am older. I, I'm going I, I don't have a degree. I will I will pour coffee I, if I don't take care of myself. I have to take care of myself and not worry so much about my future, but right now my need is to focus in on myself and, and take care of myself. Um, and I did, I quit a job without a backup. And, you know, again, I'm not saying, hey, do this thing and this is great. Like it, I did not recognize that, that what you were talking about, that self-esteem thing, like who am I without a job? What is my identity? My boundaries aren't strong. I'm in a toxic space and I probably very much 
my self-esteem, how I, it really did impact me. So you're right in this space as I waited a bit too long. Um, but yeah, I had three months of paid time off too, because I never took vacation. I never took any time for myself. So that was very lucky with that space too. Um, I actually applied for this job that I have now and didn't get it. So <laughs> no, three times the positions that I really, really wanted, I did not get the first time. And so now, so you took that break, you started getting your mental health on track, you applied for this job, didn't get it, but later got it. And again, no degree. In between that time, I said, what if I just did an LLC? Because I like, and, and create like this, I know that I could do consulting for like sexual violence prevention or in, um, and dating violence prevention, primary prevention on college campuses or with nonprofits. But I was also like, I'm a card reader. Like I was like, okay, I can just use this skill set too, just to just to pay my bills if I don't know what that is. Like I don't know. And I opened up an LLC and I didn't advertise it. I it was just and brand consulting. And I a former um colleague of mine said, Hey, I've got this project. And now the consulting business is A B um AB coaching and consulting, it blew up. I'm I'm doing that work plus the job I have right now, which is at a university. Teaching. You know, I'm an instructor, um, but I'm also the associate director um, of prevention and education. So I am directing all of the efforts for um, sexual violence prevention, um, mental health prevention, um, alcohol and other drug on a college campus and an instructor without an undergrad degree. I need a PhD for this job. <laughs> I love this so much. And one of the things that is so powerful is that you took that space to create the balance for yourself. And that is such a be the wolf quality doing because when we take care of ourselves, the good that we can do in the world expands exponentially. So tell us who you serve in your consulting business, how to get in touch with you, all of those things. Yes. Um, so um, AB Coaching and Consulting, you can, um, again, uh, everyone's like, hey, you have to have all these things set up. I, I mean, I have a website. It's in it's in production. But like I'm, I'm making more money with this and info to and brand consulting and AB consulting without anything in place except for starting the LLC. So I'm not saying that's a good thing. I'm not saying, hey, don't do any work. But like, I think sometimes we're like, everything has to be set up perfectly before we move. And so I just want to say yes. So my my clients could be um, colleges who want some, you know, to review curriculum for their prevention programming or strategic planning. It could be nonprofits. Um, who are specific to sexual violence uh, work or sexual or intimate partner violence work um, who might say, hey, can you just run through um, our, our plan and our strategies and implementation to see uh, what we're missing? Um, and, you know, just overall strategic planning. If we had no budget, what should we do prevention wise? If we have this small budget, what should we do prevention wise? Um, so it's niche, but it works. But it's also, this is very important work and more and more people are realizing they need to implement these things into their companies, whether they be nonprofit or yeah. not, whether they be campuses mm -hmm. or not, it doesn't matter. It's something that's important and people, you know, much like way back when everybody was like no sexual harassment it's gone beyond that we've we need to implement even deeper prevention strategies and it's more than awareness yeah it's more than awareness it's very proactive pro-social norming which means that if we bring everybody into this and we're not not just focused on the people who might harm or the people who are getting harmed what about all of us that are watching situations that we could possibly stop the harm and so even in harassment, even with businesses, even with this space of how do we do this in a way that everyone is taking a piece of it and believes that this more equitable space is we're going to be more creative when there's less harm. We're going to be you know, able to do our work so much better. 
Exactly. It's some people talk about this feminine versus masculine. Well, when we create the structure, the structure creates the safety for the creative flow mm -hmm. that, and, and, you know, some of this work, the prevention and the strategies is about creating that structure so that we can create as our company, as whatever it is that we're doing to really be what we're meant to be mm -hmm. and do in the world. Um, awesome. So they can reach you at info at Ann Branding. Oh, Ann, Ann Brand. Brand. Yeah. Brand. Consulting.com. Consulting and uh, to speak to your point too, it's like sometimes you just have to take the leap. And if you're waiting till everything is perfect, <laughs> you, see, you just, I mean, you could be there for 20 years because yeah. nothing is ever, there's no such thing as perfect. So just take the leap. Yeah. And speaking of taking the leap, if you are ready to find true fulfillment, and you are ready to take a leap and get out of your current situation, overcome things like boundaries and finding your own personal balance so that you can be the best you can be in a job that's actually meaningful to you. Um, reach out to me. Let's have a conversation. You can go to book a call with Jenea. Dot com book a call with Jenea.com. That's G E N E A.com. And I look forward to helping you reach your true fulfillment and become who you were born to be. And thank you so much for sharing your story, your wisdom, and your wonderful spirit with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I had a, I had just a wonderful time. And I just need to add that piece that you gave me when we talked earlier about jumping around. I just need to know, like, I need to book a call with you just because just you gave me a 10 second tidbit that shifted me a month ago. I was like, I never thought of that. So I'm like, if you could, if you can do that in 10 seconds, I can't even imagine. Like, <laughs> it's pretty, it's kind of, it's pretty incredible. Um, yeah. You know, my greatest joy is watching my clients become mm -hmm. everything that they truly are. Mm -hmm. And when you said earlier about, you know, we do the best that we can in the moment that we have, it's we do the best that we can with the resources that we have. Mm -hmm. And we're doing that all yep. of the time. And when you and we all have a plethora of resources, we have so much more, but we can't access them at all of mm -hmm. the times. And when yeah. you can access all of your resources all of the time, that's when you become the most magical human being. Yeah. No. We're um, make magic. We really are. Right. <laughs> I believe but that. it's yeah, but it's when you become the wolf. It's when you really mm -hmm. become who you're born to be. Okay. All right. So thank you again, everybody. We will see you next time on Be The Wolf. Thank you for listening to this episode of Be The Wolf. Please take a moment to rate, share, and follow this podcast so that together we can inspire others to be the wolf.